favourable, I may do another one, time permitting. And reception, quite gratifyingly, was favourable. Mark Sandroni and Mark Taylor both Facebooked me to say that they very much enjoyed listening to me waffle on about Space 1999 and UFO. And we also had a, a number of emails from such luminaries as the mighty Luke Giaconetti, host of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast on Two True Freaks, which you should listen to. The mighty Ron Sadowski, one of the co-hosts of the Dinner for Geeks, also on Two True Freaks. And David Pascarella, who, as far as I know, doesn't actually have a podcast, but should do, in my opinion. Uh, those three emailed, and I will probably share the contents of those emails with you at some point through this show. Who am I? You're probably wondering if you've stumbled upon this internet radio show by accident. Well, I am Andrew Leyland, co-host of the Hey Kids Comics podcast with my son Michael and the Fantasticast with my friend Stephen Lacey. Both of those are comic book related, but this show, the Palace of Glittering Delights, can be anything I want it to be. I could have launched into a Bugsy Malone song there, but I don't feel that I should inflict that upon you. If you're only here for the comics, once again, as I said in the last show, feel free to move on. I won't hold it against you. Still here? Well, that's excellent. This episode of Palace is dedicated to my top ten all-time favourite episodes of television. I point out these are favourites. They may not be the best episodes of those particular series. As I do when I work out this kind of thing, I set myself some ground rules. These would be all genre series. Primarily science fiction, as that is my favourite genre, but also detective fiction, which is also a favourite. Second, they will all be from hour-long television series, except where I cheated. It's my list, I'll cheat if I want to. This eliminated a number of really good shows that were only half animated series and episodes of Press Gang, all of which would have made the grade if not for my pesky, purely arbitrary rules. Also, it eliminated old Doctor Who shows, which are either 25-minute single episodes or feature-length stories, depending on how you judge them. You will also notice there is no Star Trek on this list anywhere. This is because the original Trek is my all-time favourite television series ever and will be the subject of its own show in the future. Again, time permitting. But also, would I have said the best Trek episode ever or the best episode of each of the various different Star Trek series? 
Being a rather simple burr of little brain, I grappled with this question before eventually deciding, ah, screw it, Starter will get his own episode at some point down the line. This also meant that I had to keep it down to ten. This was harder than I thought it would be, and so a number of my favourites didn't make the grade. Borderline choices and shows that may have made the cut, if I were in a different mood when I compiled it, were the Veronica Mars season one finale, Leave It to Beaver, which satisfyingly wrapped up the loose ends of the Lily Kane murder mystery in such a way that proved that A, writer Rob Thomas had it all planned from the beginning, unlike the producers of Twin Peaks and Lost, and two, taking a novel and adapting it for TV works much better than adapting a novel for film. Other bubbling under-choices were the Six Million Dollar Man episode, The Seven Million Dollar Man, a tour de force lesson in scenery-chewing from guest star Monty Markham, who seems to thoroughly enjoy stealing the show from squinty-eyed minimalist and series star Lee Majors. The opening episode of the UK version of Life on Mars would also have been a contender, as was the Many Happy Returns episode of The Prisoner, one of the best number six escapes, but oh no, he doesn't really, episodes of that show. The final episode of classic BBC sci-fi drama Blake 7 also very nearly made it for being one of the bleakest episodes of a TV show ever to err right before Christmas. Breakpoint, a tension-filled terrorist takeover the wedding episode that was Die Hard before Die Hard, was a first-season episode of The Equalizer, and featured Edward Woodward doing that repressed rage just bubbling under the surface until he pops thing that he did so very well in that show. The Divided Loyalties episode of Babylon 5 was the first time writer Joe Straczynski's promise that anything could happen to anyone was depicted on screen. Ironically, it was nothing to do with his much-vaunted five-year arc, but rather actress Andrea Thompson wanting off the show. Led to a pretty good episode, though. Space Above and Beyond produced some great episodes in its one-season run, and who monitors the birds would have gotten a nod as well. One way I did think of getting around the editorially mandated one-hour rule was to include World's Finest, the Batman-Superman crossover that originally ran over three episodes of the respective animated series and was released as a 60-minute direct-to-video movie. Even I felt that that was cheating, though. You'll also notice there are no Sopranos, Dexter, Mad Men, The Wire, or any other shows from the current golden age of television. Whilst I appreciate the technical and writing genius of these shows, I've really connected with them on an emotional level. I never cared what happened to Tony Soprano. In fact, I thought he was a thoroughly unlikable, rather dim character, with few redeeming qualities. But when Buffy had to send Angel to hell to save the world, I was gutted. Certainly TV has been responsible for some of the most indelible images to be etched in my brain from being a tyke. From Zippy and George to Mr. Ben, the Triffids blinding John Dutine to the nuking of Sheffield, there are the gruesome death of Lisa Faulkner's character in Spooks, to the insane chanting of Liverpool football fan Robert Carlyle in Cracker, TV has produced some of the best and most memorable moments of all of our lives. Here's a few of mine. I must point out, though, that these are not in any particular order. If you were one of the people who listened to my recent UFO 1999 episode, you'll know I rediscovered the magnificence that was Jerry Anderson's first foray into live action. However, the first episode identified seemed staid and plodding to the episode I picked here, Time Lash. UFO completed 26 episodes over its two-short run, but these were produced in two separate blocks for contradictory reasons. 
Some say they needed to move studios. Others say actor Ed Bishop broke his ankle. Whatever the reason, and both Bishop and actor Michael Billington refute the Bishop story, although both agree Billington did stand on Bishop's foot, this break in filming, the last nine shows were delayed, seemed to cause the writers to step back and look at what the show was and make it better. In my opinion, although there are great episodes in the first production batch, the last nine blow these away. It's a hugely creative period. Every single episode in this last nine is during, different, experimental, and quite often surreal as hell. The break meant a few characters were lost in the shuffle. Gabrielle Drake and George Sewell gained employment elsewhere, and Wanda Ventham, now better known as Sherlock star Benedict Cumberbatch's mother, was brought in to play Virginia Lake, Straker's new second-in-command. Adding a woman to the top three removed Freeman's lecherous behaviour and gave the series a different dynamic. It was this relationship that highlighted this episode. A shadow employee, disenfranchised with his role and jealous of Commander Straker, makes a deal with the aliens that gives them access to shadow equipment, allowing them to manipulate a single moment in time. Straker and Lake discover that by shooting up with an experimental drug, they can move around in this moment in time and try to stop the disgruntled employee. If this description sounds familiar, it's because The Next Generation essentially did the same idea in an episode called Timescape. This UFO episode is simply a remarkable piece of television. Some complaints abound that 70s TV is slow by today's standards, but not this episode. It fur rattles along, and for me, didn't seem like 50 minutes had elapsed when it had finished. The scenes are short and often shot with handheld cameras, the special effects showing stools hanging in mid-air and dust off buzzsaws floating are remarkable for the time period, and the structure the show begins with Straker dishevelled and dirty smashing up Shadow HQ is wonderfully non-linear. The show also brings back characters from other episodes, something I always felt added to a series' believability. However, it's Ed Bishop's finest hour as Ed Straker. Sweaty, grimy and intense, Bishop holds the screen for the duration, keeping the audience guessing all the way through. There's very little music in the episode either, so the sound guys go to town on footfalls and other sound effects. Taut, claustrophobic, essentially a man on the verge of a nervous breakdown, it's an absolutely wonderful performance in a wonderful episode of a much underrated series. If you have any interest in science fiction television, this one episode is well worth tracking down. As with a lot of my picks in this selection, you don't need to have seen any other episodes to enjoy this one. My next pick is Magnum P.I. Magnum is a genre show only in that it's a detective series, but as with a lot of TV, they did try supernatural style episodes, of which this is one. Limbo, the seventh series finale, opens in a very similar manner to Time Lash, which we pick up in Media Res. Magnum, as sweaty and dishevelled as Ed Straker, is trapped in a warehouse being pursued by a number of gunmen armed with semi-automatic weapons. Magnum has one bullet left. We're not too concerned. Thomas Magnum has been in situations like this before, we're sure he'll be in them again. Magnum uses every trick in the book to manoeuvre himself close to the entrance, a small doorway beyond which lies freedom. The gunmen close in. Magnum uses his last shot to take out one of the men and breaks for it. Again, like Time Lash, there is no music, just the rhythmic beat of Thomas Magnum's heart as he runs and his breathing. The camera angle is a point of view from Thomas Magnum. The doorway, represented as a pure white light, is just beyond and gets closer and closer. But then, as escape is just within his grasp, 
A shot rings out, and Magnum spins around, hit by a bullet. Two more shots echo around the empty warehouse, and Magnum falls to the floor. The symbolism of the white light is not wasted when you've seen the entire episode. This sequence is a particularly tense opening, as tense as any episode I've ever seen, and it gets more and more surreal as it goes along. We next see Magnum walking down the beach where he bumps into his old pal Mac. Mac died in season three, so we know something is awry. Mac tells Magnum he's in limbo, unable to move on until he sorts out whatever it is that is holding him here. We also learn that Magnum's ex-wife, Michelle, and their child, Lily, are in town, and she is remarrying. There's some other stuff relating to past episodes, but what really makes this a great hour of TV is its spirituality. Magnum learns that he has to let go of Michelle. He has to let her get on with her life, and he does so. Despite still loving her, he lets her go, and in doing so, he frees himself to move on. The final shot of the episode, beautifully scored to John Denver's Looking for Space, has Thomas walking off amongst the clouds. The episode may sound a little bit heavy, but it's never maudlin. Magnum gets to have fun with his limbo state, teasing his friends as they look over his comatose body. His friends also have some fun at his expense, and the show uses this opportunity to bring back a number of characters and actors from prior episodes. It's a little bit It's a Wonderful Life, a little bit Heaven Can Wait, but shot through with Selleck's winning charm. Magnum never really got enough credit for being a smart show. It's always seemed lumped in with those cheesy 80s action-adventure shows, which it kind of is, but wasn't at the same time. There was close attention paid to character continuity and development. The same actors appeared as the same characters multiple times over many years. We never learned what Steve Austin's favourite movie was or where Michael Knight went to school, but we knew everything there was to know about Thomas Magnum by the end of the series, from his favourite baseball team, the Detroit Tigers, to his favourite film, Stalag 17, and everything that runs between. It wasn't perfect. Magnum is given three different birth dates over the course of the show's eight-year run, and it's really distracting when, in an early episode, actress Kathleen Lloyd, better known to fans of the show as D.A. Carol Baldwin, shows up in another role. But the show never really got the respect it deserves for its character development. Higgins and Magnum grow to really care for each other over the course of the series. They start as antagonists, and on any other 80s show they would have stayed that way for the duration of the run. But Magnum and Higgins realise they have a lot in common over the eight years, and it's fitting that the last words in this, what would have been the last episode of the show, are Higgins demanding that Magnum wake up. John Hillerman, who played Higgins, was actually from Texas, but managed a convincing British accent for the show, and Higgins, who could have been a caricature, became one of its most sympathetic characters. It's he who stays by Magnum's bedside for most of this episode. It's a sad ending, but a satisfying one when Magnum lets Michelle go and moves on himself. But as things turn out, it would not actually be the end. An upswing in ratings in Magnum's seventh season, plus audience dissatisfaction that the character died, led to an eighth season. And it's a credit to the writers that the power of this episode is not diminished by the turnabout. In fact, this show and the first two episodes of the final season make for a pretty decent three-part story. But it's Limbo that I remember most fondly. I grew up with Thomas Magnum. I was sad when he died. I was happy when he woke up from his coma. I am eternally grateful no Magnum reboot has ever happened. Selleck is Magnum. Short shorts and Hawaiian shirts aside, it was Selleck's dramatic and comedic chops that made the show more than just another 80s detective show, and Limbo more 
than just another 80s TV episode. Speaking of detective shows that were more than just another 80s detective show, Moonlighting launched in 1985, kickstarting the career of Bruce Willis and reigniting the fading career of Sybil Shepard. Moonlighting was a standard 80s TV premise. Shepard was Maddie Hayes, former top model, whose agent had absconded with all her money. Left only with her assets and investments, she discovers she has a shareholder's stake in a private detective agency, City of Angels Investigations, and elects to sell it and her other investments. Smart-talking PI David Addison, Bruce Willis, talks her out of it, saying that long-term, it's in her best interest to make the company work. They renamed the agency Blue Moon Investigations after Hayes' most famous ad campaign, and the series is set for wacky hijinks. Except series creator Glenn Gordon Caron wasn't interested in detectives, or making a detective show. He made Moonlighting a detective show simply to get it on television, detective shows being very popular at the time. Karen was much more interested in 40 screwball comedies, all sexual frisson and rat-a-tat dialogue. The early episodes were fun, but the mysteries were nothing special. The gold came from the dialogue, which crackled with wit, and the two leads who, despite their off-screen animosity, bounced off each other magnificently. My favourite episode of the show, Atomic Shakespeare, isn't even really an episode of Moonlighting at all. A kid avoiding doing his homework wants to watch Moonlighting. His mum would rather he study than watch that show where all they really want to do is sleep together. The kid takes his homework, a copy of The Taming of the Shrew, upstairs, where the episode immediately becomes ye oldie, and the cast of the show takes on the roles of the characters in the play. But this being Moonlighting, there's an oddly contemporary feel to the proceedings. It's hard to know where to begin in this rollicking and hugely entertaining hour of TV. Be it Sybil Shepherd's OTT performance as Bianca, she literally turns and snarls at people at one point, or Willis as Petruchio's rendition of Good Love by the Rascals, to his horse wearing Ray-Bans and having a BMW logo on his rump, to the fourth wall breaking jokes, to the message, still timely today, of equality. This was such a mind-blowing episode when I was 13, and, having watched it recently, I can still attest to loving every minute of it. Sadly, this was the lowest rated episode of Moonlighting, even on repeats after it had been critically hugely acclaimed, which shows the taste of the general viewing audience. Also sadly, it launched Bruce Willis's musical career on the world. Can't have everything. Buffy the Vampire Slayer launched onto an unsuspecting world in 1998 on a nothing network in a terrible time slot. It tanked. Thankfully, it was picked up by another network where, despite being still in a questionable time slot, it became a phenomenal success. What's this? The untold history of Buffy? Well, kinda. Buffy debuted on UK TV on Sky One, a cable station, at 8 o'clock on Saturday nights. Throughout its first season, which ran through to the 16th episode of season 2, it rapidly became the new favourite show of Angela and I that no one else was watching. Honestly, we were laughed at for saying that we watched a show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. When it was removed from the schedules, we were gutted, not least because it was in the middle of a storyline, the Angelus arc for people who know the show, but because we hadn't had the foresight to tape any episodes. We only had a few on video taped from occasions where we were out that night. One of these was Lie to Me, a second season episode written and directed by series creator Joss Whedon. Whenever anyone makes a list of top Buffy episodes, they are nearly always the Whedon-penned-and-lensed episodes, yet this one is always conspicuous by its absence, and I have to confess I wonder why. 
No, it's not as flashy as Hush, nor as accomplished as Once More with Feeling, but what it is, is a standard episode. There's no gimmick. It's not all people singing or nobody talking. Episodes that good as they are seem to exist to stop Whedon from getting bored. Lie to Me tells a simple story. Buffy is overjoyed when an old friend from a previous high school, played by Roswell Block of Wood, Jason Burr's Billy Fordham, shows up at Sunnydale High, and they quickly go about renewing their friendship. Only old friend Billy had figured out that Buffy is a vampire slayer, and moved to the vampire capital of the world to get himself bitten, as he has a brain tumour. I think what I love about this episode is that it's a normal show, but a show at the peak of its powers. I think the second and third seasons of Buffy are by far the best seasons of the show, and this episode is a fine example of the show in its early days. It's thematically rich, discussing themes like is it better to lie to some people to protect them, because the truth can sometimes be worse. We see in this episode that the good guys lie, and the bad guys tell the truth. We learn Buffy has a very simple moral compass as to what is right and wrong, and crucially to the narrative, Billy Fordham isn't a villain which leads Buffy to question her stance. Ford just wants to live after being dealt a crap hand by life. Does that really make him a bad guy? These differing shades would come to permeate Buffy's world as she grew older, and Whedon and his other writers would examine them in more depth, but Whedon alone examines those themes deftly in this one episode. The dialogue in this show shines, but no more so than in the final scene, when Buffy, perhaps feeling that the world is changing around her as she takes her first steps into a more adult world, where things aren't quite as cut and dried as they are when you're a teenager, asks Giles to lie to her. Giles's final monologue is delivered beautifully by actor Anthony Stewart Head, easily this series' unsung hero. It's a great and understated episode. Okay, we're going to take a, a short break here, where I consult with the feedback that we received on the last Palace of Glittering Delights. I said we, obviously I meant me. At the top of the show I was a little bit remiss in that I didn't mention that I also received emails from Chris Franklin and Timothy Elliott. So I do apologise, gentlemen, no, uh, no slight was intended. It was just a case of I didn't scroll down the email far enough. So that's uh, my incompetence on display. Timothy Elliott's emailed in. Uh, he enjoyed the episode. He likes that it's more casual, more off the cuff. And he says that his exposure to UFO, 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 here in Texas was uh, growing up. I'd only watched a few Space 1999 episodes in the 70s. And he was more familiar with the toys than the show. His email continues, Last year, I decided to rent and watch all 26 episodes of UFO for the first time. Again, I was acquainted with the toys, but not the program. I wanted to delve deeper into the world of Jerry Anderson. I'd recently watched some Thunderbirds and thought the model work was outstanding. UFO, I quite liked the series, and I agree it had a mature feel, much more than Anderson's other work. The episodes felt more like a soap opera than a sci-fi show, and I appreciated the adult feel that they did not shy away from more adult storylines, even if they did get a little melodramatic. The one that comes to mind is when Straker's kid is hit by a car and dying, and Straker has to choose between his son and Shadow. One episode dealt with an alien stranded on Earth against the backdrop of a couple having an affair. Keep the shows coming, Tim, Carrollton, Ket, Texas. Uh, yeah, UFO, I've watched a number of, of episodes of Space 1999 and, and UFO since I recorded that episode. The impetus for that show was obviously I just rewatched the, the first episodes of both. Space 1999 is 
interesting more than it's actually enjoyable. I've, I've only watched a number of first season episodes, so I, I can't talk to the second season yet. I mean, I've, I remember it from being a kid, but I've not re-watched any of them, and it's my understanding that they, they changed the format considerably for the second season, as they did with a, a couple of shows, Book Rogers and, and War of the Worlds are two that spring to mind. For me, that never works. You know, you don't take a show and completely retool it for another season and hope that a failing show gets better. You should really concentrate on the elements that do work and just remove the elements that don't. But but I'm not a television producer, so, so what do I know? But the UFO episodes that uh, Tim's referring to here are A Question of Priorities and A Square Triangle are two great episodes of the show. UFO, I think UFO... I've blitzed through most of them. And I think the fact that I've blitzed through most of them Worst Space 1999 is more of, mm, go on, I'll give that another go, is a testament to the show's quality. I said in that episode, it is kitschy. If you're not a fan of kitsch, you may not enjoy it. I I think it's great. I think it's a great show. I think it holds up very well with the caveat that it's dated as hell, which I know is kind of an oxymoron. How can it be dated and hold up? But, you know, stuff can be of their time and still be entertaining. I don't see anything wrong with that. And I'm always a sucker for futuristic stuff that's now in our past. That, that just amuses me. Tim has a PS where he thinks that Scott Gardner and I should record a commentary for the Six Million Dollar Man pilot movie. I'm down with that. I love that pilot movie. I think it's a great pilot movie. As long as we're, we're only talking about the original 75-minute pilot movie and not the two-hour or 90-minute syndicated version, which is awful. It's just got too much padding in it. But uh, thank you, Tim, for emailing in. The other person that emailed in that I forgot to mention at the top of the show again, I do apologise, scrolling is apparently something that happens to other people, was Chris Franklin, who says, I thoroughly enjoyed your UFO Space 1999 special, despite never having seen either. I remember seeing Space 1999 merchandise as a kid, Power Records, but the show was never syndicated where I could watch it. I'd never even heard of UFO until a few years ago. What I know of it, I learned through the postings of Brian Helia over at megomuseum.com and his own pladstallions.com. He has a show that he co-hosts called Pod Stallions, and they did a Jerry Anderson show a while back, which um, Chris sent me a link for, and I listened to it, and it was very entertaining. They covered the whole of Anderson's over with more of an emphasis on the toys and the hardware and, and stuff like that, which is fine. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of Anderson toys. I had um, I had an eagle from Space 1999, because everyone had a Space 1999 eagle, and I had Captain Scarlet's car. And uh, that's pretty much it for Space 1999 toys. I didn't have a lot of them as a kid. I had a friend who had the 12-inch Commander Koenig doll. Um, I presume that that was a Mego thing if if it's mentioned over at Mega Museum. But yeah, that Plaid Stallions episode was very entertaining. And I thank Chris for emailing in and pointing that out to me. On with the show then. We'll do another couple of emails later on as we, we go through. Next on the list, I freely admit that I cheated here. This isn't actually one episode, but rather a two-part episode telling one story. Prometheus opened the fourth season of The Incredible Hulk. 
in the US anyway, God knows how it heard in the UK. The Hulk is a fond memory from childhood, and I'm assuming I don't have to explain the premise of the show to people listening to this. Every week from 1978 or so, six-year-old me would get into his jammies in time for 7.30pm on the ITV network to tune in as Dr. David Banner would invariably stumble into other people's problems, trying to help, but end up trashing the small town and throwing some people around as his green-skinned alter ego. The Hulk is a formulaic TV show, something the producers admit freely, but it's a testament to their creativity that they managed to make a show that was, at the very least, solid entertainment every week. The best episodes of the show broke with formula, and that they only did that kind of thing two or three times a season has made them more interesting in the long run, and certainly some of the more memorable of the show's segments. One such break from the traditional was this episode. It starts off quite normally. David is fishing in the stream, seeking solitude once again, when he runs into a blind girl who has fallen into the stream and needs assistance. He fishes her out and learns of her plight. She was blinded six months ago and struggles to cope, and has moved into the mountains to be by herself and deal with her new circumstances. So far, so TV movie of the week. However, a meteorite that landed nearby has brought this little out-of-the-way spot to the attention of Project Prometheus, a military and scientific body that was set up to investigate alien contact and life. Dr. Banner, who one would think would have learned to stay out of potentially stressful situations by now, investigates the fallen meteorite, hulks out after a confrontation with a swarm of bees, and due to contact with the meteor finds himself stuck in mid-transformation. As a rule, the show didn't do that much sci-fi, beyond the concept of a man that metamorphoses into a large green hulking creature twice per episode, that is. Producer Ken Johnson was far more interested in small-scale human drama, and whilst it would have been fun to see the Hulk fight, say, Bigfoot, the success of the show seems to indicate Johnson's instincts were correct. This episode, though, is balls-out small-screen sci-fi. For one, it's a pretty huge concept. Banner being trapped in mid-transformation is a large-scale idea anyway, but add in a top-secret military and scientific base, army personnel and helicopters, location filming and the SFX of the meteor, and you have a substantially large-scale episode, which is probably why it's a two-parter to ameliorate the cost. Johnston will have been well aware of the idea of repackaging double-length TV episodes into movies for the overseas market, and the scope of the show seems tailor-made for that, although oddly, this was never done. Secondly, whilst The Hulk was not a cheap show to produce, I've seen figures bandied around of $600,000-$700,000 per episode in 1978 money, this episode looked quite expensive. The use of stock footage is kept to a minimum and Luferino gets a larger-than-normal slice of the pie, appearing as The Hulk for the majority of Part 2 and the latter third of Part 1. Bixby, likewise, gets to flex his acting chops trapped as a demi-Hulk for most of his appearances in this two-parter, Banner's not as intelligent and normal, but much stronger than a human, although not as strong as the Hulk, and Bixby gets to play this aspect of the character. The effect of the Demi-Hulk was achieved by having Bixby in Hulk-out makeup for close-ups, and having a third actor, not as big as Farino, but more built than Bixby, in the long shots. Investigative reporter Jack McGee also gets a substantial role, not just relentlessly pursuing the Hulk. Here we actually see him as an investigator and journalist, and, as with other episodes where actor Jack Colvin was allowed to shine, he rises to the challenge. It's not 
perfect. There is a fur bit of padding at the beginning of part two. Did we really have to see the sexist scientist using a robot to seduce a young woman, for instance? And there is a scene in part one where Banner rescues the blind girl that in any other episode would have been a Hulk out, but here wasn't for no real reason that I can see other than budget. I also wonder where the floor of the dome came from that they trapped the Hulk within, but in most respects this stands up exceptionally well. The central idea is strong. Bixby and Farino are as good as ever, and in part two we see an example of the Hulk's cunning as he realises he can't break free of the containment unit the military have trapped him in, so he digs his way through the floor to the level below. The action is impressively mounted by Johnson, and Monty Markham guest stars, and isn't quite as scenery-chewing as he was in The Six Million Dollar Man. And this is one of those rare and therefore very memorable episodes where Banner and the Hulk are the centre of attention. Most episodes weren't about Banner, rather they were about the character of the week that he must assist. In retrospect, this episode is also a bit of a missed opportunity for the series. Lots of people see the Hulk in these episodes, proving that McGee isn't just chasing an urban legend, and it would have been nice to see these scientists try and track the creature down in subsequent episodes, maybe even forming a Hulkbusters-type outfit, but sadly this was not to be. Taken on its own, this is a nice companion piece to Johnson's V miniseries, and if edited together and tightened up, it could have made a pretty cool movie. Next up, I've always liked the original Battlestar Galactica. As a kid, it had everything I could want in a show. Cool ships, great SFX, fun characters. Sure, the plots were a little hackneyed, even as a kid I spotted when they ripped off a western or two, but it was fun and I liked it. However, Galactica was roundly mocked. Battlestar Exlaxia and Battlestar Ponderosa were two nicknames bandied around, and it was often unfavourably compared to Star Wars and Star Trek. So when they announced it was going to be brought back in 2003 by a Star Trek veteran, no less, I was sceptical but interested. After all, Ronald D. Moore, one of the best writers on New Trek, was doing it. Not J.J. Abrams' Trek. I mean New Trek, as in 90s Star Trek. And he had some cool ideas for the show, and it was going to be moderately well-budgeted for a sci-fi original. It could be a contender, I thought. Nobody imagined how much of a contender, literally no one, could have predicted that of the three big 70s sci-fi franchises, Star Wars, Star Trek, and Battlestar Galactica, it would be Battlestar that would emerge as one of the best science fiction TV shows of the early 21st century. Star Trek suffered from franchise fatigue and Star Wars released more prequel movies than just pissed people off, Battlestar Galactica would emerge as a genuinely good show. The series was rich in character development, the plot held up an allegorical mirror to the times, and the special effects proved, if proof were needed, that the Viper was one of the best ships in all of sci-fi. Recast as a bleak social commentary on life in the 2000s, Battlestar rapidly established itself as not Star Trek. The Cylons were recast as implacable enemies with deep-seated beliefs that they were right in what they were doing, the extermination of a race that subjugated them. The new Cylon models could also pass as humans, meaning we literally could not tell friend from foe. There was a cataclysmic event that wiped out society as the characters knew it. The parallels with real life, although obvious, were rarely heavy-handed. 
Moore was careful to express both points of view, something I always appreciate in my entertainment. There's nothing I hate more than being preached at by somebody with an agenda, irrespective of if I agree with it or not. So if, for example, the show were to address Guantanamo Bay in an analogous situation, both sides of the argument were presented by different characters, no easy answers were given, and the audience was left to make up their own mind which side they would fall on. My favourite episode of a show that had a ton of favourite episodes was the season 1 opener 33. This episode established that in the five days since the events of the three-hour miniseries that launched the show, the ragtag fugitive fleet has not slept as, every 33 minutes, a silent attack occurs. Commander Adama, Edward James Olmos in the remake, is confused. Silence should not be able to follow them through a faster-than-light FTL jump. As the crew and fighter pilots get increasingly more strung out, the fleet discover that when one ship, the Olympic carrier, suspiciously missing from a recent jump where the Cylons did not follow them, reappears, the Cylons follow. Starbuck and Apollo are ordered to blow the ship up, despite it potentially carrying over 1,000 humans. It was decisions like this that set Battlestar Galactica apart. The real consequences of trying to keep alive a human race that was now only 50,000 individuals strong were central to the show, and it never took the easy way out. Tough calls were made, bad decisions were made for the greater good. Adama frequently made decisions that were morally questionable, even when you understood why he made them the mark of good writing. Apollo struggled with his conscience over the actions the fleet made, and no one's hands were clean by the end of the series. Characters changed over the show's five-year run, sometimes not for the best. There were even times when the show wondered if humanity was even worth saving. This particular episode is a tense and gripping 40 minutes of TV, and sets the show up wonderfully, arguably better than the miniseries, which I find starts and ends well, but is flabby around the middle. Subplots bubble along, Colonel Ty's alcoholism, Starbucks insubordination, Apollo not really feeling that he ever really wanted to be a fighter pilot in the first place, and Baltar's insanity. And the sheer weight of the situation permeates every scene, and yet, on Battlestar, it worked. Yes, it was deadly serious, but this was a deadly serious situation. But the series never felt as worthy as Space 1999, or as tedious as Voyager got at its worst. This is a great episode, dramatic as hell, and well worth checking out if you've never seen the show, as I say, probably over the pilot movies. It was rewarded with a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. Next, Angel was the spin-off series from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It never reached the highest highs of Buffy, but it never sunk to Buffy's lowest lows either, maintaining a steady consistency throughout its five-year run. Catch me on a good day, however, and I will confess to often preferring Angel to its big sister. It had a number of great story arcs and individual episodes, some of my favourites and possible contenders being Hero from Season 1, which saw the death of a lead character, Waiting in the Wings, a ballet episode from Season 3, Spin the Bottle, Are You Now or Have You Ever Been, and Smile Time, in which Angel is turned into a wee little puppet man, were also considerations. As was, if I was really cheating, the entirety of the main Season 2 story story arc. However, an underrated episode that I really dug was Somnambulist from Season 1. Angelus, for those that don't know, was a vampire who tore through Europe with a song in his heart and blood on his lips for over a hundred years until he crossed a gypsy clan in Romania who cursed him with a soul. 
Suddenly burdened by the weight of the many deaths he had caused, he wanders around for years, shortens his name to Angel, this is irony, before Buffy taught him how to love and live again. Their doomed relationship caused him to leave her show and start his own, working initially as a PI in LA, a setup that lasted for about a season. In this episode, Angel is experiencing horrible dreams of killing people in his days as Angelus, only to wake to discover they are being murdered in the present day. His investigations lead him to Penn, a human he turned centuries ago, who is killing again, but killing people who remind him of his family, a family Angelus helped him kill. It's a solid entry into the show, but often these episodes are overlooked in favour of more gimmicky or obvious episodes. This isn't the first time a vampire angel sired back in the day would return to bedevil him in the present, nor would it be the last, but it was one of the best. It's a standalone episode in a season that was reasonably standalone. The series would become increasingly serialised as it continued. The writing is clever and witty and the fight scenes are well realised on a TV budget. Lead actor David Boreanaz was at least doing some of his own stunts here, unlike later seasons or over on Buffy, where it became increasingly obvious when the actor was replaced by the stunt artist. Mike Massa, also Superman's double on Superman Returns, was the stunt coordinator on Angel and he should receive the lion's share of the credit for the impressive fight scenes. As with all Whedon shows though, it's the characters that shine. Charisma Carpenter is at her very best as Cordelia Chase, delivering the funny like no other, but being sympathetic and curing when she needs to be. Alexis Denisoff is still playing Wesley Wyndham Price as a stick-up-his-ass C-3PO alike, but he would both lighten and then darken as the series progressed, and he is arguably the character who changed and grew the most over the run of the show. Future Hawkeye Jeremy Renner is Penn and delivers a good performance as a charming yet deadly adversary for Angel, and if there's a flaw, it's that his character could have been given more screen time. The scene where he shows up at the police station in the middle of a briefing about catching him and slaughters the cops in the room, smiling as he goes, is a standout moment. The script is taut and well-paced, despite only being 40 minutes, I felt like I got a good amount of entertainment, and it does, despite being standalone, add to the overall storyline. In this episode, Angel is revealed as a vampire to his cop friend Kate Lockley, a story arc that will take a year to play out. Angel was very comic book, even more so than Buffy, and I think that may be why I like it. Again, we'll take a slight break there to consult with email correspondence. Email number one in this segment was from Luke Giaconetti, my good friend Luke, who emailed in to say, I don't remember the moon leaving Earth orbit when I was in college. No, I don't remember it leaving when I would just had Adam either, but, you know. Commander Andrew Leyland, we need to have a serious name for these serious shows. Seriously. Opens Luke. After listening to your show about UFO and Space 1999, I felt compelled to drop your quick line. You mentioned very early on that the very best part of Jerry Anderson's shows was the hardware. Much like his contemporary to the East, Asia Tasubura, I'm probably butchering that pronunciation, Anderson always did fantastic model work in his shows. Both of them always included very detailed, well-constructed vehicles and weaponry for the heroes to use and for kids to want to play with. When Jerry Anderson passed away, I felt it was the passing one of the major unsung heroes of science fiction TV genre. Everyone seems to think only of Anderson's work as silly puppet shows, as was brutally sent up in Team America World Police, but his work was hugely creative and influential as far as I'm concerned. Um, I don't disagree with any of that, especially, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know of his influence in America and around the rest of the world, but certainly over here, he was influential on the childhood of many people my age and younger. I mean, the 90s saw a resurgence in the popularity of Thunderbirds 
the like of which we've never seen. Toys were flying off the shelves, and kids that were five, six years old in 1994, 1995, were were in walking around wearing Tracy boys' outfits. That's a measure of the show's success, that it breached the generations like that. Uh, Luke doesn't recall that he's ever seen an episode of, of UFO, but Space 1999 he remembers from the early days of sci-fi. I never warmed to it much, he says, but I did watch it a few times. I got the same sort of serious sensibility from it. Compared to other shows I was being introduced to at the time, Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, Land of the Giants, and so forth, this one was much more staid. So it was usually interesting, but not overly memorable, at least for me. The effects, though, were fantastic and really hold up well. See what I stated earlier about Anderson's hardware. I don't know that I've ever seen Breakaway, what I I'll definitely give it a watch since I was able to find it on archive.org. In my mind, Space 1999 is paired up with the time tunnel because they usually urge together on sci-fi. I do wonder if shows like these were produced nowadays, would they have caught on here in the States? Considering the anglophilic nature of a lot of nerds in the US, I suspect the staid, straight-up style of Space 1999 might have found an audience and a following on Tumblr. Um, I don't know. I, th- I, I think the, sh- the show has its fans, undeniably. I mean, I think UFO's a much better show, but Space 1999 seems to have a much bigger fan presence on the internet. And, and even recently, Arcadia Comics, I think they're called Arcadia, recently released hardcover graphic novels of the Space 1999 books from the 70s and, and new material, so there must be an audience for it out there. But I don't know. I don't know. Certainly compared to those other shows you mentioned, it is completely different in tone to Galactica and Buck Rogers and such. But, yeah, certainly the BBC reran a lot of ITC stuff in the 90s and and Space 1999, I don't think, got a rerun. So I I don't know what that says about it. Thanks for the show, Luke. Thanks for the email, Luke. You're uh, you're very welcome. Thank you for emailing in about it. I did say more Palace episodes was dependent on, on the response, really. I mean, I may carry on with something like this if Hey Kids Comics comes to an end and Michael goes to college. I've not decided yet whether I should just carry on with a, a different comics podcast or just carry on doing Palace on a, a semi-regular basis, more regular than it is at the minute, where I can just talk about what I want. I mean, although it will primarily be comics, because I, I love some comics. Another email came from Ron Sadowski, who is one of the co-hosts of Dinner for Geeks, on the Two True Freaks Network. I should also mention Luke's podcast, Earth Destruction Directive, because we've got to keep it in the family. We're contractually obliged to plug other Two True Freaks shows. Ron emails in saying, uh, I have been meaning to drop your line for a while and never seem to get round to it, but you finally hit a nerve that I have to respond to. Your episode on UFO and Space 1999 was like you were in my head. To start off with, you or your listeners can watch both series for free in their entirety on Hulu.com. I found this out earlier in the year and made a conscious effort to watch the entire run of Space 1999. I'm six episodes in and it's not going well. Each episode I fall asleep and have to rewatch the second half. Yes, the special effects are gorgeous, watching it on a 40-inch TV at 1028 resolution. One can see the detail of the craftsmanship on each ship. Some of the other effects are not so well done. Anytime a part of the moon base explodes, they use the same shot from the first episode. And yes, the characters have no real personalities, but worse than that is the stories really lack oomph. They sort of meander and then kind of resolve at the end without anyone really leading. I think you're very right in your statement that Next Generation was much more of a follow-up to Space 1999 in style and tone. But why, you may ask, 
does this make you in my head? Well, last week on our whim, I decided to rewatch UFO's first episodes. And then after thinking, wow, I should bring up the differences of UFO and Space 1999 on Dinner for Geeks, I then thought better of it because no one would care. Rewatching UFO, I had forgot how strong and purposeful the show was. I watched all the episodes about 15 years ago, but seeing it now on my new TV in stereo, wow, it feels big and solid. Quick dialogue, fast edits, and all the misogyny you can put on TV, it really makes an impact. The only thing Space 1999 does better is the opening music and montage. Wow, if every episode was like that. And the music reminds me somewhat of Jeff Lynne's 1978 musical version of War of the Worlds. And I sit there every time just waiting for David Essex to start singing the words to the theme song. <laughs> and he gives some sample lyrics there that I'm not even going to attempt to sing. I hope you'll consider doing another UFO 1999 episode, maybe best episode versus best episode, or even worst episode versus worst episode. I would enjoy hearing more. Ron Sadowski from the Dinner for Geeks podcast. Well, thank you very much, Ron. Um, a couple of things on, on that the aforementioned Battlestar Galactica ripped off Space 1999's opening this episode montage at the beginning of every episode that, that they did. I always thought it was pretty cool. Some people complained that it was spoilers, but it was so fast caught, you, you didn't really get any spoilers from it. Ron D. Moore was, um, was quite careful about stuff like that. Thank you very much for emailing in, Ron, and, and Luke. That was very much appreciated. My next pick is an obvious choice. It's almost too obvious, and I resisted it for a while for that reason. But because something is obvious doesn't always make it a bad choice. Sometimes the episode or story that constantly gets picked as the best of that particular type is because it's the best of that particular type. Such is the case with Out of Gas, the best episode of Joss Whedon and Tim Mania's space western Firefly. Firefly is a show that some people absolutely love and some people won't give a chance to because of the rabid fanbase. Personally, I think if you're letting a fanbase put you off watching or reading something that you may otherwise enjoy, you need to stop taking yourself too seriously. Anyway, the plot of Out of Gas is simple in and of itself. Whilst taking a route through uncharted space to keep them off the Alliance's cortex, the starship Serenity suffers a compression coil malfunction. This nothing part causes the engines to stop, cutting off life support, but crucially not the gravity, and Captain Mal Reynolds sends his crew off in the shuttles in the hope of rescue. He stays with his ship, having sent out a distress signal, and to his surprise, a vessel answers the call. However, when they board and shoot him, it looks like it's all over for Mal and Serenity. Out of Gas is the only episode of Firefly you need to watch to decide if you're going to like the series. If you like it, there's 14 other episodes you can check out. If you don't, move on. You've only lost 40 minutes of your life. I really don't subscribe to the idea that I need to devote three years to a show before it gets any good. Unfortunately, neither did Firefly, because it only lasted half a season. Out of Gas is a great episode for a number of reasons. One, it's magnificently structured and written by Tim Minear. It's odd that of the three Whedon shows that made my top ten, two of them were not written by Whedon. Minear here essentially gives you the origin story of the crew of the spaceship Serenity, a Firefly-class spaceship from which the series derives its name, and tells us how they came to be aboard her, all except the three characters that came aboard in the pilot episode. Number two, it's beautifully shot, taking place over multiple time frames. The director manages to visually clue the viewer into each with his use of colour and light. Number three, the dialogue is witty and clever, but never too cool for school or full of pop culture references. A lot of writers who followed Whedon and his team think that pop culture references make a show clever and hip, whereas it's the writing of good dialogue that makes a show clever and hip. 
Firefly, set in a future far removed from Star Wars gags and jokes about Harry Potter, proves that a show can have stylized and clever dialogue that isn't overly reliant on the audience getting a reference. Number four, the score is a wonderful blending of every western you've ever watched and a dramatic sci-fi beats. Five, the space western motif is often mentioned when talking about science fiction. Let's face it, there's nothing cooler than a space cowboy. But Firefly got the tone and mood of a space western absolutely spot on. The world's serenity tours are backwater frontiers, people barely eking out a living and struggling for water and food. Amidst this world of spaceships and oppressive regimes, the heart of the story is still people struggling to survive. Whedon said the show was inspired by two things. A book on the Civil War called The Killer Angels, and the idea, what if Han Solo had nipped to the toilet when Obi-Wan and Luke came into the cantina and he missed them? This premise of a frontier set of planets away from an Earth that is burned out set the tone for the series, and is surprisingly consistent throughout the run. The idea that we'll all be able to speak Chinese due to their emergence as a major player was woven into the series quite effectively as well. Anyway, Out of Gas is such a magnificently made piece of television you can't help but wonder why the show didn't succeed. I'd rather watch this than The Sopranos any day of the week. Unlike other shows on the list, my next choice, Farscape, is probably the least accessible. From midway through its first season, the show became increasingly serialised. The characters developed in odd and surprising ways. It seems also to be a forgotten show, which is a shame, as Farscape has a lot to recommend about it. Following the adventures of ISA astronaut John Crichton, don't know why it wasn't NASA, Farscape was the name of his project, which he felt could harness wormholes, enabling people to travel into deep space. Whilst testing out the ship, Crichton finds himself on the other side of the universe, aboard a living ship, Moya, with a motley cast of characters, mostly escaped prisoners. By the second season, there were three-part stories, changes to the cast and environment, and a show that bought little resemblance in terms of its setup to the early days, Die Me Dichotomy was the second season finale, essentially a wrap-up to the Liars, Guns and Money trilogy that preceded it. Moya is critically damaged and the crew need to find a way to cure her. Crichton, meanwhile, has been implanted with a bizarre chip in his brain by Scorpius, the S&M-clad bad guy who wants Crichton's wormhole knowledge that is trapped in his mind. The episode opens with a slow burn, with Moya being fixed, and Crichton's insanity reaching fever pitch as he starts to see himself as Scorpius. Whilst all this is going on, the other crew members are having their own issues, as was the norm in Farscape, including the once emotional peacekeeper Erin's son realising she has feelings for Crichton and he for her, Dargo and Chiana engaging upon a love affair that also seems to include his son Joffrey, and Moya not being terribly well. However, just as Crichton and Erin start to get that act together, Crichton's insanity reaches fever pitch, building as it has been over a number of episodes, and he flees only to be pursued by Erin. In his deranged, Scorpius-induced state, Crichton forces Erin down and, trapped in her ejector seat, she plummets into the sea of the planet they are orbiting. This burly covers the basics of what is going on in this incredibly dense and action-packed episode that also manages to be incredibly emotional. Farscape was a rare science fiction television show in that it managed to treat all of its characters as human, a neat trick given that only one of them actually was. It was also the subject of much scorn and ridicule by people who really don't have a clue for utilising puppets and creatures from the Jim Henson effect shot. Yet, for anyone who actually watched the show, these puppets became more real than any number of characters in any other science fiction shows. 
The fact that the actors can interact with puppets far more convincingly than with CG creations also helps sell the realism of the aliens in the show, but this in no way denigrates the performances of the people behind the characters of Moya, Pilot and Rigel. Actor Ben Browder, though, was the emotional heart of the show, playing Crichton as a normal man in far from normal situations. No wonder he eventually cracked up. Browder looks like he's having a ball in Farscape, not only playing Crichton as a man on the brink of sanity, but also playing Crichton as Scorpius, which allows Browder to do a pretty decent impersonation of Scorpius actor Wayne Pygram. Ben Browder's another one of those actors who's never really been given credit for his performance in Farscape, because it's a silly science fiction show with puppets, but he frequently showed his range as an actor in this role something he's never really been given the opportunity to do again in subsequent performances. The heart of the episode, though, isn't the plot, gripping though that is. It's the death of Eren in the middle act and its repercussions down the road. Watching this when it erred, it was so well put together, so well acted, edited and scripted, that it was one of those rare moments of TV where everybody watched stupefied that they'd actually done it, Farscape being one of those rare science fiction television series my wife actually actively enjoys. Even knowing how it all turns out, it's still as gripping as hell, and one of the best science fiction deaths since Spock kicked off in Star Trek II. And yet, this audacious set-piece isn't the end of the episode. No, the worst, to quote Bill Dozier, is yet to come. Crichton, racked with guilt over his part in Eren's death, agrees to be operated on despite it being potentially harmful to him in ways worse than death. Just as he reaches the moment where his speech centres have been disconnected, in walks Scorpius, who kills the Doctor operating on Crichton, leaving our hero with his brain literally exposed so Scorpius can pluck whatever he wants out of it, and our hero is left to die on the table, unable to communicate. It's a great ending to a great season, to a great series that doesn't get enough love as far as I'm concerned, with the caveat that Farscape probably isn't going to be to everybody's tastes. We've got one more email to look at before we get to the last of my top ten pick. This one was from David A. Pascarella, who said, And it, I just wanted to let you know that I really enjoyed listening to your special episode, UFO 1999, the first proper episode of Palace of Glittering Delights. I listen regularly to Hey Kids comics, but this was a nice change of pace. I'd never heard of UFO, and now I'm interested in checking it out. As a child of the 70s, I was a big fan of Book Rogers in the 25th century, Battlestar Galactica, and the hard-to-find here Doctor Who with Tom Baker. This show seems like it would fit right in with my tastes. Thanks, and my best to your family. David Pascarella, Staten Island, New York. Well, thank you very much for emailing in, David. I heartily recommend that you continue to check out UFO. Again, if you're not one of those people who has to watch everything, I recommend Exposed, Kill Straker, Subsmash, Question of Priorities, Confetti Check A-OK, and particularly Time Lash Mindbender and The Long Sleep as being some of my favourite episodes of the show. As with all things, more palace or whatever we decide to do after Hair Kids comes to an end, if it does, is, you know, in the lap of the gods. Finally, tonight. No list like this would be complete without an episode on Doctor Who. And yet, this was one of the hardest to pick, which is why it ended up being last on the list. I ended up just putting it off as I reamed mentally through my choices. All the others basically came out instantly. I, I knew what my favourite series were, and I knew what my favourite episodes in those series were. So that was, was quite straightforward, but Doctor Who was harder. 
Was I going to go old school? In which case, Terror of the Zygons, the Seeds of Doom, and the Talons of Wing Chiang would all be in with a shot, but they are single episodes. They're four, six, and six parts respective. And although I'd broken the rule, I set myself ever so slightly by including a two-part Hulk story, I felt that doing it here would be pushing it even for me. So that meant it would have to be a new Who episode, most of which are all around the 45 minute mark. To be brutally honest, this made it a lot easier, and there were two that I thought of straight away that came straight to mind. The first was Matt Smith's astonishingly assured debut, The Eleventh Hour. I don't think an actor has ever grabbed the part of the Doctor and ran with it as well as Smith did in his opening episode. But really, ultimately, it only ever came down to one choice for me. Dalek was the sixth episode heard after the series made its triumphant return to UK television in 2005. Christopher Eccleston was the cool dad incarnation of the Doctor, all big leather jackets, boots and dark clothes. The Doctor was damaged and wounded by events in his past, events that would be revealed to the viewing audience as the series progressed, and Eccleston, being a heavyweight actor, was more than up to the challenge of this new, slightly darker take on the Doctor. And the series really needed someone of his gravitas if it was to be taken seriously. One thing the Doctor wasn't, though, was scared. Although he was a broken man, he was still capable of doing seven impossible things before breakfast and still had a childlike wonder about him. All this changed when, in the then future of 2012, he and his then companion from Earth, Rose Tyler, arrive via the time and space machine of the TARDIS in an underground bunker. They find it owned by Henry Van Staten, a collector of alien artefacts who the Doctor takes an instant dislike to due to his arrogance and short-sighted nature. However, when the Doctor discovers that Van Staten has in his possession the last remaining Dalek, all thought dead in the Time Lord vs. Dalek Time War, the Doctor must put away his own prejudices and prevent it from destroying humanity. It's hard to describe the impact this episode had. For years, the Daleks had been a joke. Yes, in the 60s and 70s they were huge, but their impact had been diluted by numerous jokes about their lack of ability to climb stairs and that they had sink plungers for guns. In one 45-minute episode, writer Rob Shearman and presumably an uncredited Russell T. Davis take every single one of these jokes about the Daleks and stick them up your ass, making them into serious, deadly killing machines. These Daleks fly, these sink plungers rip your face off, and this one representative of the Dalek race almost single-handedly wipes out Van Staten's private army and, if he reaches the surface, could conceivably wipe out the human race. And we, as an audience, totally believe it. The Daleks were scurry again. Part of this was down to the Dalek redesign, where the Doctor Who production team show you how to do a revamp. You change everything, whilst appearing to change nothing. Part of it is no doubt down to Eccleston's magnificent heavyweight performance. We've never seen a Doctor as terrified as he is here. We've never seen a Doctor so capable of wiping out the last remnants of a race as here. The Doctor changes over the course of this episode. He learns something about himself, a rare treat in a Doctor Who episode. These are, of course, all adult concerns. The single best thing about Dalek? It had a new generation of children scared of pepper pots and screaming exterminate in the playgrounds. And that's it. That's my top ten. There's another episode of Palace of Glittering Delights in the can, as it were. Not in the toilet. 
it may be in the toilet, it depends on your point of view, doesn't it? Again, I, I welcome feedback from people. This, at the moment, is still a side project. It may become an ongoing concern, as I say. If Hey Kids comes to an end with, with Michael's impending college applications, we'll, we'll see what happens, though. We still don't know the fate of that show, but I'm still open to doing this as a side project as and when time permits. Thank you for your indulgence. Um, one thing we do have to think about, I suppose, is should we give this its own feed? I'll have to, I'll have, to have a think about that at a later date. Thank you for listening, if you did. Thank you for emailing in everybody who got in touch. It was much appreciated. And if you have anything to say, feel free to get in touch with me via the Hey Kids comments at virginmedia.com email address. Thank you, and I'm sure we'll talk again at another time. Goodbye. Baby